When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Although we sort of pride ourselves as, as humans that we have conquered fire, we actually haven't. We can control fire to a certain extent, but we haven't got complete control over fire. You're listening to a science-focused podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Helen Glenny, Editorial Assistant at BBC Focus magazine. In the last few weeks, wildfires have been hitting the headlines worldwide. Greece has experienced the worst wildfires in Europe this century, with 92 so far confirmed dead, while major fires have also hit Sweden, California, Canada and even the UK. Wildfires have been a feature of our planet for millions of years and we've long lived alongside them. So why do we struggle to tame them? And what can we do to lessen the impact? Professor Andrew Scott is a geologist and fire expert at Royal Holloway University of London, who's written a book on the subject. Our staff writer, James Lloyd, chatted to him to find out more. Andrew, it seems that wildfires have been in the news a lot recently. We've we've seen the devastating blazes in Greece, uh, Sweden, Portugal, California, even the UK in the last year or so. Is there any evidence that wildfires are on the rise? It depends on what you mean by on the rise and what you're using as a baseline. I think in terms of our recent experience, yes, um, I suspect. But of course, we have now better news gathering And I think our understanding of fire on Earth has changed quite dramatically over the last 20, 30 years. Two things that have been important. The first is um, the development of satellite technology, which has allowed us to see fires across the globe. Before, of course, I suppose before 1970, only rarely you would hear about a a major fire. Of course, now you can see the images from space, which we can see on on our televisions. Um, And so we have a a much clearer understanding that fires are actually very, very frequent across the globe in many places. 
The second thing that we need to think about is that we now understand that there is a very long history of fire on Earth, going back almost 400 million years. And so fire has been part of the planet's system, if you like, for all that period of time. So for the first thing to say is fire is a natural phenomenon. So why it comes in the news is partly because its impact upon people. And um, we have two major problems, I suppose, or even three. The first is that we've tended to suppress fires in areas where perhaps they shouldn't have been suppressed because sometimes it allows the buildup of fuel so that fires become much, much bigger and much hotter. Um, secondly, we're building more and more out into these flammable landscapes, and so therefore we're threatened by the fire more even though they, they would happen naturally. And the third is, because we're building out into those flammable systems, um, us, we ourselves become a major ignition source because the, the sort of three things that we need for fire is the, is the build-up of fuel. So if we haven't managed our forest particularly well, if we've just allowed material to build up, and then if we suppressed fire, that's a, that's one significant issue. The other is that the climate is is an important element, and so therefore, if we've got long periods of dryness, then that that creates a system. If we've got a large buildup of fuel, which is very dry, then fires inevitably will start. And of course, the ignition then is important. It could be a natural ignition, um, but we tend to always blame humans. Strangely enough, when what, you know, it's often the case that the first thing to blame is a human. You have a situation, there were these major fires at Yellowstone in 1988. Some people may even remember that. And this was a big thing, you know, oh, humans have started these fires. Well, of the 40, over 40 fires that took place in Yellowstone, I think only eight of them were human started. There's a, there's a tendency to ignore the fact that sometimes these are started um, naturally. However, even if they're started by humans, the fact that you've built up a fuel and it's dry enough, the climate is such, then, then you'll get a fire anyway. I think what several things have happened recently is that people have begun to, to realize that um, fires can move very quick. And of course, a lot of them are driven by strong winds, and that makes it much more devastating. Um, the other problem is that we tend to forget. We've got very short memories when it comes to fire, so that people realize there are fires, but forgotten there was a fire, you know, it might have been five years, 10 years, or not in somebody's lifetime. Therefore, it goes off their radar. And in some cases, some communities have built sort of fire escape routes and so on. It may be the case even in Greece, where then people have built upon areas which would, should have been left open for people to escape. And so we need to be more what we call fire-wise, I think, I think there's a big, the big problem we have with understanding fire is the fact that most of us never study it. Must never see it on the news as a devastating disaster and never really think about it. And, and so perhaps, if anything, that these recent fires can, can begin to um, you know, get a conversation going about the nature of fire and whether it's, you know, that it is a natural part of the system and that to what extent if we're going to build in these areas, whether or not we should um, think more carefully about how we should protect ourselves about being engulfed by such large wildfires. 
So you say that fire is a kind of natural part of the environment. What kind of roles does fire play then in, in this in its more natural role, let's say? Okay, well, depends what you mean by role. I suppose fire occurs because there's fuel to burn. And if we've got above about 17% oxygen in the atmosphere, which for most of the last 400 million years we have, then fire is going to burn if there is an ignition source and that fuel is, is dry enough. And we do know from the historic records that, in fact, oxygen levels have varied. And so at some periods, they've been even higher than today. And so um, in those circumstances, even fairly wet vegetation can burn. So... It's an interesting case that many of the, the world's flammable vegetations evolved during a period about 90 million years ago when the fire was very, very prevalent on Earth, a very high fire period, the time when dinosaurs were around, in fact. Um, so, for example, some of the pines which have developed very thick barks to try to survive at least fairly regular fire um, evolved at this time. Some pines actually developed... Um, cones which only open after fires go through. Some plants, for example, the eucalypts, which are very flammable, actually have developed systems to regrow very quickly from charred stumps, for example. And others, such as some of the finbos vegetation in southern Africa, kind of sense smoke of, of approaching fire, get ready to drop their seeds, and after the fire goes through, the seeds are dropped and... Um, new vegetation comes up. So in some cases, plants have adapted to a fiery regime. The other, the other um, type of vegetation would be savanna. In Africa, for example, you would think, you know, we're all familiar with savanna with these lovely roaming animals going through savanna. But actually, such savanna wouldn't be there if it didn't have regular fire, um, because that keeps down um, any significant shrubs and trees. So Fire actually is important in many parts of the world to, to if you like, um, keep certain types of vegetation going. In other places in the world, then fire is a bad thing. For example, in many of the tropical rainforests, which don't normally associate, you know, have much fire, they're very sensitive to fire. So in those systems where man has introduced fire, this can be quite a disaster. So in some cases, then, it's, it's, it can almost be better to let the fire play out, if you like, to let it do its thing. I think so, because it's certainly the case in some of the Western US. We now know that um, if you have regular surface fires, then you can keep the fuel loads down. And if the, many of the trees survive those fires very well, they actually move fairly slowly. If they're let, let to burn, then, then you keep those fuel loads down. If you suppress them too much in some cases, you let the fuel build up, the fire becomes much hotter, it goes into a major crown fire, and these can spread very rapidly and can be quite disastrous. So I think, the, I think we have a, a number of problems, and it's exacerbated by two other features. Firstly, humans have introduced plants into systems which weren't naturally there. And one particular type of plant are certain grasses, We've introduced grasses such as the cheatgrass into Western US or the gamba grasses into Northern Australia, um, which allow um, the spread of fire much more rapidly. And so there's evidence to suggest that certain areas where this, this grasses have, have, have really taken hold, it's, it's changed the dynamic of the fire system. 
it is the case, for example, in parts of um, southern U.S., where we have those very iconic Sugaro cacti, you know, famous from the um, westerns of in the, in the cinema. And, of course, those are often um, just isolated cacti with no vegetation between. So if a lightning um, hits such a thing, such a plant, then it just burns that one cactus. What's happening is that grasses now are invading that environment so that the fire spreads from one cactus, then... Um, the the grass is set light and then it, it actually takes out the next cactus and so that whole vegetation type is actually under threat because of what we call plant invasives so that's one significant thing and the other is small it, it appears that um the geological evidence suggests that during periods of fairly rapid climate change this is a period of very um in higher increase in in fire um, occurrence, so that any disturbance of, of the normal climate system um, may create an environment in which we have more fire. So in Western US, although it's not just getting slightly warmer, it's not just a matter of warming, it's a matter of changing the dynamics of the weather system. So for example, we have a, an earlier spring melt in the, in the Rockies, so the fire season is longer we have a you know a more growth early on, and then drier periods where that fuel can burn. So again, small changes in climate and, and the shift of weather can actually be quite significant. And it's not just in Western US; of course, in other places as well. So you say that it's sometimes better to let these fires play out. At what point do the authorities step in then and say, "Okay, we need to do something about this fire. We need to stop it from spreading"? Presumably, that's when human life is at risk. Is it? I think so. I think it involves a very difficult discussion because, of course, people are very upset when their houses burn down and they've lost everything. And, of course, it's very difficult then to have a, you know, a discussion because people are really upset and we're going to rebuild is often the case. I think what people have to think about is if you're going to build in a system which naturally burns, even if you can, however much you try, you can never take fire out of the system. We haven't, you know, although we sort of pride ourselves as, as humans that we have conquered fire, we actually haven't. We can control fire to a certain extent, but we haven't got complete control over fire. Even putting out fires, very often it's the case that the, the firefighters are doing their best to save property and lives. Actually, it's a change in the weather that usually, you know, puts the fires out completely. Um, so there's a limit. So you have to be careful because you're then putting firefighters at risk, maybe to save property. Um, it may be that saving people is the most important. Um, but then we also need to have some kind of discussion about planning. I think in, in many parts of the world now, we need to think about should when we're planning our villages, our houses, our, you know, escape to the country cottages that, you know, we're going to surround ourselves with flammable trees, then we mustn't be surprised if they, they, they then burn. So we might think about how can we change our planning regulations? How can we maybe um, put in um, fire breaks between, you know, where there are, there are houses and people and where, and, and also perhaps escape Roots. Think more carefully about that. So I think, in, especially, there's been a drive in parts of America, and there's beginning to be a drive in the UK and other places to develop what we call firewise communities. 
have some discussion locally about, well, if there's going to be a fire, what were we going to do? How do we get out? Because that was maybe one of the big issues in, for example, um, the large fires they had in Canada in Fort McMurray. Um, you know, everybody was trying to get out on the same road. And so, you know, then fire overtakes and people get killed in their cars, which is, is tragic. The other issue is, for example, the Portuguese fires which happened last year in these eucalypt plantations. Those were very flammable trees um, planted in a, in a very uh, an assisted Mediterranean climate system which there is likely to be fire. And, of course, the major roads going through were going right through these, these flammable vegetation types. So, you know, people trying to escape the fire, the fire move very, move, can move extremely quickly. Um, you know, get overtaken and then tragically people get killed so again i think the problem is if fire science it's not even like climate science where you know people have recognized it as a sort of a topic <laughs> understanding fire you know at universities fire is studied in, in a dozen different departments but there's no kind of bringing together of all the different disciplines so that, you know, the only fire department in university is one that's there to put them out rather than to study them. And so I think we need a much, much more um, coordinated research and funding towards understanding fire and how we, we relate to fire and then plan. I think the UK has done quite well in the last, you know, four or five years where we've actually now got in the development of new town regulations, if the there's going to be a new town developed. There is a, a, an understanding that looking at the um, interface between the, the buildings and the and the wildland, um, the vegetation around, that they have to understand about fire. There has to be regular. How are they going to deal with a fire in those circumstances? Can they provide access for fire engines? So that's the first thing. The second is that I think many in many countries which haven't had a familiarity with fire, and we would include the UK in this. Um, where in southern England, for example, the fire service themselves are becoming aware that fighting a wildfire is quite different from fighting a building fire. And so two things need to happen. You might need different equipment. And I know the Surrey Fire Service, for example, have actually ordered some specialist equipment for dealing with wildfire. And secondly is training. So that some of some of the fire services in the UK have sent, are sending out some of their officers to train in Western US on wildfire, and uh, I think that's extremely important. But in the public consciousness, it's not there, and uh, we have a significant issue, for example, in Surrey, um, which most people wouldn't realise. Uh, you know, in England, they might not think of fire as a significant issue, but there have been a number of fires even this last summer. But, for example, Surrey is the most wooded county in England. And, again, it's surprising because it's so close to London. But if you've got any significant fire there, and it's quite likely that it would happen. I mean, we've had a very long dry period. We're going to continue to have some, some relatively dry periods. Um, if a fire takes place, then we've got a huge number of people living in such areas. All of our major arterial routes going into London um, go through areas which are wooded, which might, you know, you've got not just the fire itself, but also the smoke from the fire. You've got the pollution that holds. You've got the problem of, you know, the air, the number of airports and so on, which are there, which in which planes can be grounded, you know, and even getting fire engines 
um, to the scene can be a problem. The fire that occurred in Swindley Forest, which is on the sort of Hampshire, Surrey, Berkshire border um, area in 2011, it took something like um, all the fire engines from 11 counties to put that fire out. So if the other issue you're seeing, to, I think, on the, the news recently is the problem of wind and the taking burning embers and spreading fire away from the normal fire front. So if you've got that in the in southern England, if you think of the, the size of the California fires, which they're saying is the size of the area of San Francisco, and you were to sort of put that footprint into southern England, you'd realise the problem that you could have. Tackling the, the wildfires is obviously one thing. Is, is there any work at all into forecasting the fires, you know, almost seeing where they might be most likely to happen and then doing things before they, they kind of get to the severity we've seen in the news? Well, you have already, for example, in the US, there are fire um, forecasts. Um, you can go online and actually see whether you know what the forecast is. But of course, a forecast just means that region is, is you know could potentially burn. But of course, it doesn't mean to say that every part of that area is going to burn. <laughs> and so, you know, again, people say, "Well, it's never happened here before." Well, you know, not, don't need to worry. There, there is an attempt now in the UK to look specifically at how we can develop a fire warning index here in the UK. And there are some mechanisms of doing that, but it's not been very satisfactory. But there is research going on at the moment in which is trying to develop a new system. Um, but again, it's not just a matter, if you put out an alert, you know, people say it's like the Met Office puts out alert of you don't want to be in the sun or you want to, you know, a pollen alert or whatever. If um, you put out a forecast, to what extent do people take any notice? Until we have a proper discussion about fire, about that it might happen in our community, then people will just say, well, okay, it's not going to affect, affect us. And I think the other, the other problem is if you have a fire warning and it keeps on happening, they say, oh, it's likely to be a high fire day and there's no fire, then people just then ignore it. I think, I think until, until there's a really major fire, um, for example, in southern England, I'm not sure that most people will take any notice of fire. It's, it's something they hear on the news. It's not something which is affecting them. And I think that's the case in many things. Until it happens to your own community, you tend to think, well, I've got plenty of other things to worry about and not think about that. Looking to the future in the UK, do you think we can expect to see more wildfires then um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the coming years, in the coming decade, for example? I think that's quite likely, especially if we have these slight shifts in, our, in, in the way our weather works. It isn't just simply a matter of higher temperatures, although that is significant. It's a matter of periods of, say, wet winters and, uh, and springs followed by dry summers. So it depends on the fact that you might have a lot of plant growth at one period and then becomes very dry where that, that vegetation dries out and is available as a fuel to burn. And I think that that is the, the most worrying thing. Um, I'm surprised to some extent that we've, you know, we've escaped a, a really major fire. Um, it's probably luck rather than design. Um, but I think certainly there are one or two people in our community, both in the forestry and in the government, who are beginning to um, push the agenda, this up the agenda of something significant to worry about and plan because there's no use having a an you know one of these um after 
analysis and say, well, we could have done better. We need to think ahead of time and think, well, if we do have such a fire, what can we do? What are the what are the measures we can take? And uh, I think we certainly have begun to do that uh, with Cobra and some of the and the um, government schemes where we've got a number of scientists and a number of people from the forestry involved with uh, and from the fire service who realise the problem and are beginning to plan. Um, but it's not there in the normal community. So we need to increase the discussion within our community uh, about fire because it's always there as a negative. And, of course, it is a negative in this country um, in many cases because um, you know, we haven't got a lot of natural vegetation in southern England, for example, or plant planted. But um, certainly, I think globally, we need more and more to put fire as a, as a process up the agenda. After all, if you if you look, you know, you say what are the major features of climate change? People are talking about flooding, or about hurricanes, or about whatever. But fire is actually there. It's part of the natural system, just like you know, rain and flooding is. So people are now beginning to understand that why they call why there are things called floodplains is because they tend to flood. And so people are thinking about that. Our, you know, should we be building our houses in floodplains? Or should we plan to, to, you know, protect our areas from flooding? Equally, we should think about, you know, we've got vegetation that can burn. Um, maybe we should take account of that. Should we actually think about, you know, what kind of uh, areas which we need to have breaks, fire breaks? Or should we think about not plant, planting certain types of trees in certain environments? Because it's not always the best thing to just plant trees willy-nilly. And so I think there needs to be a much bigger discussion within, within this country about fire. That was Andrew Scott talking about the future of wildfires. His book, Burning Planet, The Story of Fire Through Time, is out now. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. If you like what you heard, then why not subscribe and leave a review? You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, and many of your favourite podcast apps. Find out more at sciencefocus.com. The August issue of BBC Focus magazine is out now, and in it we're hunting for life's cosmic origins on the back of ancient asteroids, celebrating NASA's 60th birthday, and asking why we haven't developed a male contraceptive pill yet. And of course there is much, much more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.